Welcome to episode 282 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Are you unsure if your next offer will be successful? What if I told you that you already had the answer to that question? You just haven't tapped into the resource that will unlock them for you. Can you believe that all you have to do to get the answers you need is ask? Join me and other entrepreneurial-minded folks this June for a one-time, two-hour, wake-up-your-network pop-up mastermind. We'll cover my proven method on how to discover likely prospects and referral partners, how to reach out to them, and how to structure and maximize your research calls to ensure you've got the information you need to successfully launch your product. In just two hours, you will get the support you need to build and connect with your likely prospect list in the best, most efficient way. Space is limited. Apply for a spot at robbysamuels.com forward slash pop up app. That's P-O-P-U-P-A-P-P. Apply by Monday, May 23rd to be considered for the June session. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. She's an independent journalist and author who has contributed to publications such as Fortune, where she has written the David versus Goliath column, Money, CNBC, Inc., Forbes, ARP, Life Reimagine, Crane's New York Business, Dr. Oz, Good Housekeeping, Marie Claire, and a variety of other outlets on the topics of entrepreneurship and careers. She's also a ghostwriter and collaborative editor. She was twice nominated for the National Magazine Award for her features and edited the magazine's website, building its traffic from 2 million to 5 million page views per month. She is co-founder of the $200,000 Freelancer Blog, a site to help independent professionals earn a good living, and of the editing service Emergency Editor. She's the author of Tiny Business, Big Money, and The Million Dollar One-Person Business, Please join me in welcoming Elaine Pofeld. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's great to be here. Elaine, you're probably a neighbor of mine. Uh, welcome uh, and thank you for joining us from your home in New Jersey, which is just a short distance from where I'm living outside of Philly. And as you know, this is a, a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think leadership is pretty simple when you boil it down, it's it's about being able to put the good of the group ahead of your own interests and towards something that is positive. And I'm still a work in progress as a leader, um, but I I think it was by being a mother. I have four children, and being a parent forces you to take charge sometimes. And <laughs> And hopefully make the best decisions for the good of all. You work on that though every day, I think. Yeah, or try try to take charge <laughs> and try to, try to make charge, decisions. Yeah. It's not necessarily taking charge. I think actually a lot of it is is um, staying open to what people's natural gifts are and then letting them take the ball and run with it instead of trying to direct them into what you think they should be doing. Mm, that's uh, really actually a great definition of parenting as well as leadership, the having that patience to, to pay attention and listen and nurture what people's gifts are. Um, but you're also still having a sense of like, we're all, let's all try to get in this direction. Um, that's great. I, I, I'm so always sort of curious how people define these things because uh, it's sort of a broad topic and it can sort of be boiled down, but your relationship with it is also about your upbringing and, and where you kind of or your earlier influences even. So I'm kind of curious if we rolled back the clock and we didn't just think about you as a parent, but you know, you when you were younger, uh, I just read a very impressive intro. <laughs> so you were a very accomplished person, but I'm curious when it all started, was this kind of how you showed up in, in the playground, in high school? Were you, were you already seeking office or organizing kids or were you kind of more kind of watching what was unfolding in front of you? I'm primarily a writer. And so that's always been my identity. I never really saw myself as, as a leader or CEO or anything like that. And I'm, I, yeah, I'm really not now. I do have a, a very small business, but 
um, writing is really what drives me. And when I started out in my career, I, I worked at small newspapers and I just got out there and wrote sometimes two or three stories a day. And I just became proficient in the actual work that I do. I think now we see so many people becoming Instagram influencers overnight and that sort of thing that you get a sense that there's no work involved in building something of meaning, but the real work is in the practice of whatever it is you do, you know, the, the, the meaningful work and, and building up to getting to the point where you can do bigger things. Was there someone who influenced you uh, at a young age? I've been lucky to have a lot of great influences. I, um, you know, one editor who really influenced me when I was at Fortune Small Business Magazine, Hank Gilman was the editor, and he just had a, a way of inspiring people that was very subtle. You know, if he didn't like a story, he would just come back to you and say, fix it. He would tell you what to do. And I thought there is a lot of trust in saying, fix it right? Because he, he knew you knew how to do it and he wasn't going to make it easy for you. But a lot of learning came out of that. And that's guided me a lot in, in, in the work that I do, realizing I don't have to come in and solve the problems for everyone else. But if I have people I trust, um, giving them the space to actually solve them. I can imagine that in the moment, that sounds like a very frustrating boss to have, but in retrospect, that that you can see like, wow, they really trusted me. I learned a lot. I got to figure it out on my own. I got to believe in myself. Right. So it's, uh, it's interesting how our perceptions sometimes of the, the leadership moment may not be what we then later on in hindsight uh, reflect on it. It's true. A lot, a lot of his leadership, I think was built around trust. I remember he used to tell people that they could just go home when they were done with their work you know, if that was three o'clock or whatever, he wasn't there to have them punch a clock. And think about how opposite that that is from a lot of other workplaces. But there's a lot of trust in that because he felt like everyone was an adult and they knew what they needed to do. And they were accountable too for getting their work done. So if they went home and it wasn't done, they they were accountable for that. And And it seemed to really work for everybody there. Wow, that's a very different example from from a lot of workplaces. Was this when you were first starting out? Like, how how early in your career were you? It was. It was. Um, I would say, you know, middle of my career. I was in my thirties, and mm-hmm. um, not when I was first first started out. Um, but yeah. my first. Well, I had worked at another magazine before that, but basically my main magazine job. I'm so curious. You said you identify as a writer and it sounds like that's been true for a very long time. Were you um, like part of the yearbook or the newspaper or things like that in in high school? Were you already identifying as a writer back then? Yeah, I would say all of the above. (laughs) Yeah, I I was the editor of the newspaper in my high school um, and I I worked on the Yale Daily News. I I was one of the arts and entertainment editors there and um, I always liked being part of a publication, the community of it and the um, exchange of ideas and the passion and the learning from the other contributors that that was very valuable. I mean, that's one of the trade-offs when you go freelance is you have to create your own community. I know your expertise is networking and the networking is what really allows you to have that community if you're not on staff somewhere mm-hmm. and, and get the stimulation you need. It's kind of intangible what you get from being around other people. But when it's gone, like it was during the pandemic, to some extent, you know it's gone. And I think we're, we're really grappling with that now is, you know, what is it exactly? What is community and what does it do for us and how can we create it? under all different kinds of circumstances. And it's a very interesting question because we are, you know, we're not meant to be totally solitary. We're mammals. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) you know, you would have uh, surprised me if you had told me three years ago that I'd be content as an outgoing extrovert being home all the time, but it's because I've, I've built this amazing global network that I see all the time now. I mean, I'm, I'm in touch more frequently with people than I would have been if I were traveling, um, because it's just a lot more intentional about how I'm spending my time and I'm not having to travel all the time to do it. So 
it, it, I can't wait to get back in person, but I also know that I haven't really, I've kind of gained something almost more than I lost because now I know I can always weave that back in. Um, I definitely want to talk more about that, but I want to understand more about your trajectory because you don't just wake up one day and like become the, the, the overnight success. It's a lot of work. Um, did you go to school for journalism? Was that, was it really a clear path for you right from the beginning? No, I studied English literature. I, I initially wanted to be a fiction writer and I still have that aspiration, but it's hard to make a living doing that. (laughs) So I needed to make another type of living using my writing. And I did general assignment reporting. I, when I, um, I worked at the North Jersey Herald and News at my first job. That was a small, like, uh, county level newspaper. And then I worked at the Jersey Journal in Jersey City. I was the city hall reporter for a while. And then I kind of burned out on that type of reporting because a lot of it was really grim news. I remember like a boy uh, got killed in a space heater fire and I had to knock at the door. And I one of my beats was covering the Hudson County Jail, you know, and that has a lot of tragedies to it. And I just needed to do something light and fun. And I always liked fashion. And I somehow talked my way into a job at Women's Wear Daily as a fashion editor. So I went from that to being a fashion editor. It was probably too great of a pivot, you know, in terms of my interest. And it it was fun and it was really interesting, but it was a little too light maybe for for my personality. And so I did like the entrepreneurship angle of it. And I became friends with some of the designers and I saw what struggles they had to live a creative life. They really had to master the business side or find someone who could help them do that. And then when I had the opportunity to join Success Magazine, which is about entrepreneurship mostly, um, I took it and I worked there for a while. And then um I had applied for a new job at um, New Jersey Monthly, and I actually was asked to become the editor of that magazine. And around the same time, I had the opportunity to edit Fortune Small Business Online, which then was literally, they had a web producer. This was 1999. And so it was like the relatively early days of the web. And I would be the editor and I'd have this colleague you know, who would post the stories and it was really small, but I, I talked to a headhunter who had been in the industry for a long time. And she said, you know, Elaine, this is probably the last time you can get in on doing online journalism without really knowing what you're doing. And something in that appealed to me. So then I turned down the job at New Jersey Monthly, which would have been a great job. It, it's a great magazine. And um, and I took this opportunity and I had a chance to learn the web and um and it turned out I was good at building traffic. I didn't really realize I would be because I'm not really a techie, but I intuitively know how to do it. And, um, you know, maybe that's why I like entrepreneurship so much, because there is sort of an intuitive element to it where you try a lot of things and see what sticks. Um, and then I was there for eight years and I actually went over to the magazine after four years on the web um, to Fortune Small Business Magazine. And I love doing long form features, but as we all know, that that whole art form has kind of faded out. Everything is a lot shorter now. Um, but I but I love doing that in depth work. And then in 2007, I went freelance. I had premature twins who are now 18 years old, <laughs> and and um, I, they they needed me. You know, I, I felt I needed to be at home, even though I was working. Um, and then I had another daughter two years after that, and then. Um, my son, he was six years younger than them. So I had a pretty big family in a short spurt um, and freelancing just lent itself better to that. So I could, you know, if I went to the park, I didn't have to rush back with them. I could enjoy the moment with them. And I'm so grateful now that they're 18 and they're going to go off to college that I had that. It was really such a gift. And I also was able to continue the work that I loved. And I still work with a lot of the same people I worked with back then because now, you know, they're assigning editors or they're co-freelancers and we team up on projects. And it's funny how the cast of characters stays the same. The, the, some of the publications that you contribute to over the years as a freelancer, they might go out of business or whatever, but the human relationships persist if you nurture them. And I really like people um, and I like talking to them. So when somebody's in my life, I don't let them go. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that is a story I think of, of a successful career that you've had because like you said, the opportunities might change, the publications might go out of business, but if you know someone somewhere else, you know, and, th- and that person remembers you and likes you and trusts you, like it's, it's easier to keep getting your name passed along than if you're constantly starting over from scratch. It sounds like the big break was this opportunity at Fortune Small Business. Like, what, what a thing to have happen in 1999. I was, I was in 1999, I was in grad school and I was learning HTML when I was supposed to be studying because I had a high-speed internet at campus and I was having a lot of fun making websites, really bad websites <laughs> on GeoCities. It was um, hard to make good ones back then because- It of- was, yeah, it was all bad. But just like- I was all so new. And like you said, getting it on the ground floor of something like that and growing with it over the next eight years, um, that's, that's quite the catapult. Was there, was there another big break for you in your career? Or was that really a defining moment that shifted things? Actually, the big break for me was going independent because I really, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't into it a hundred percent at the time. I had really mixed feelings because like you, I really like being around people. And so part of me felt like I would be missing out by not being in an office with other people. But I also felt like I I wanted to be present for my children in person. And that's a very personal decision. I have friends that were in the office the whole time and they have great relationships with their kids. So it's in no way a judgment of anyone. It was just my choice at the time. And um, I think what shifted was my understanding of how subjective a lot of things are, because when you become a freelancer, you discover there are a lot of stories that you couldn't pitch at your old job that you now can pitch because different editors at different publications might like them. So you no longer, your audience is no longer a specific boss. It's, it's the whole universe of editors. And, and you realize how certain things that maybe you came to believe were a bad idea or didn't work actually could work. And a lot of it, um, whether it worked or not stems from your self-belief and your confidence in in yourself. And that comes out of putting in the work and putting in the time and becoming good at what you do and becoming knowledgeable, which just takes a lot of time. There's no shortcut to that. I know people always, even with building the businesses that I write about, people always wish that I had a just add water recipe in there, you know, that you do these five things and you get to 1 million in one year. Nothing is like that in life. Nothing that's worth doing is an overnight success. And like you said, your career, it looks like an overnight success, but it's been baking for a long time. And it's only when you keep showing up, like it's a practice that you have the breakthroughs and the insights because your brain is always working on this topic of whatever it is that you specialize in. Yeah, it makes me think about, um, I've heard that um, people who invest, like the VCs, venture capitalists who are investing in companies, they really bet on the entrepreneur more than the idea. Because the idea may be a flop, but if the person is the kind who commits and perseveres and it reiterates, they'll, they'll, they'll land on, the relationship will be formed and they will eventually land on something and they'll figure it out. And I think, you know, I look like, people were like, how did, you know, I wrote my second book because it was like, people are like, how did you do this? How did, I grew a multi six figure company in eight months. That doesn't just happen. And that is after, you know, years <laughs> of not making it big. And um, I was an at home uh, dad actually for the first, oh, three and a half, four years. I have two kids now, four and six. But for the first, yeah, about three and a half, four years, I was a primary caregiver while building my business. So, you know, I wasn't going to make all the money because my, like you were saying, like I was at the park, <laughs> uh, I was making decisions about my life. And now my wife and I both work from home and my kids are now in school. So things start to change again and I can invest the energy into growing a business, but I have all of those skills and all those connections and all that experience. And I had to change the format. I couldn't focus on in-person anymore. And I found a lot of success doing it online. So it, it is sort of interesting how you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you get, you get a pile of lemons and you're like, what do I do with this? And you make something out of it. That's actually quite good. Um, and it sounds like your career is a lot of making those choices for yourself, being kind of nimble and then becoming a freelancer gave you all this freedom. 
to decide what you want to do with, with your writing while deciding what you want to do with your time. That sounds like an amazing opportunity. I am kind of curious about the word freelancer, since I know you also run a blog with the word freelancer in it. Um, and you also write about entrepreneurs. So what is the difference between these two things? Is there a difference? Is it in mindset? Is it in money? Is it in like, uh, yeah. Is there is a freelancer an entrepreneur or maybe not always? I'm sort of curious. I think they're all on a continuum, you know, with maybe the um, hobby turned into a sort of business on one end and Elon Musk on the other. And most of us are somewhere in the middle of this and maybe in different places along this line at different points in our life. Like you said, when your children are very small, you might be all in, but you're working weird hours usually to accommodate their nap schedules and things like that. It doesn't make you less of an entrepreneur, um, but it means you have some constraints on when and where you can work and um, how you work. Sometimes there might be some types of work that are hard to do, like a lot of cold calls, for instance, (laughs) if you have screaming kids in the background. I remember those days and I used to think about how I wanted to invent headphones that would cancel the sound of screaming children. Because at one point I had three children who are ages four and under in the house. And um, my husband worked from home a lot of the time, but every once in a while, you know, you would get caught with the, the noise. But I think a freelancer is a little bit more project driven where, you know, other people might be coming to you with a lot of the work. An entrepreneur um, maybe would create more products. And um, a lot of times they have an intent to scale the business. A freelancer, a lot of times is creating a lifestyle business that is built around needing to, or wanting to make a certain amount of money, but also addressing the other parts of their life. An entrepreneur might not necessarily want to even do the work themselves. They might hire other people to do the work and um, they own it. They, there's a, a feeling of ownership, I think, being more important in terms Mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship. You might not be creating, if you have a freelance business, it may or may not be something that you could sell to someone else because a lot of it is so relationship driven that even if I um, sold my business to another freelancer, they would be a different writer. So other people might not necessarily want to work with them if they wanted to work with me, you know, Whereas your business, I think, might be something that you could sell because you've got the mastermind. And um, so that's something to think about, too, because if you're looking to build wealth, sometimes having a portfolio career is helpful to have some products. It could be books, like you have the two books. It could be a course. It could be something else entirely, like an unrelated product that you come up with. This is really interesting. And I, I can see how you learn more and more as a journalist about small businesses and about entrepreneurship. And that, that led to you writing these books. And I'm kind of curious, where does that come up in this trajectory? You were already on your own, like you were not working for a company when you started doing that. Um, what was the impetus for, for writing that first book? It happened by accident. I um, write a blog for Forbes and I was looking for the idea for my fifth blog of the month. I tend to do them all at the last minute in this frenzy. And I found this data from the U.S. Census Bureau about non-employer businesses. Those are the ones that don't run payroll. And I noticed there were more of them than any other kind of small business and that there was some getting to 1 million in revenue. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I don't know that many people who are solos who actually are making that kind of money. What are they doing? And then I looked through all of the data and and it looked like they were in a variety of different industries. So I wrote this blog about what industries they're in and how many there are. They're, they're less than 1% of all of the businesses, but it, it went pretty viral. It had over 200,000 page views. So then uh, people started writing to me and saying, you know, this was a real cliffhanger. You didn't tell us who the businesses are, but I had no way of knowing because the Census Bureau doesn't tell you who filled out those forms. So I wrote to the readers of Forbes and I said, if you're one of these people, would you write to me and let me know what you're doing? So they started writing, but it was very slow. Over the course of a year, maybe five of them wrote to me. And then I wrote this post about them. And one of them was Alan Walton, who 
he uh, created Spy Guy, which is an online spy camera store. Um, and then there was uh, Rachel Charlupsky. She started the babysitting company, which is um, she had all these babysitters in different different uh, parts of the country that would do kind of high-end babysitting, like creative activities with the kids and that type of thing um, and so on. And that post went even more viral. It had over 300,000 page views. And then as the folks wrote to me saying, I'm one of those businesses, I would write profiles of them and roll them out. And, and an agent noticed that these were doing really well, almost inevitably, and she thought it would make a great book. And it was in the back of my head. And I had actually started doing some ghostwriting by that point. And I had written a couple of books for other people. So I knew how to do it. And um, so then I just went with it. I, I began working with her and then she pitched it and um, she sent it out to the top 20 publishers and I was just telling my daughter this um, 19 out of 20 rejected it, but the one that bought it was random house. So it was perfect because that was where I wanted it to land anyway. That's awesome. it, it, I mean, it was, it was a good lesson for me in, in what I was talking about, which is how a lot of these things are subjective or they're caused by things that you can't really see. And the agent goes back to the editors who she has a relationship with to find out why they rejected it. So I think it was like 10 of them because I'm not a Jack Welsh type business author. That's a certain category. And only um, certain publishers only work with that type of an author. So I can't pretend to be that. Um, and then some of them said I didn't have enough service in the book proposal, like tips and things like that. No, I can write those things in my sleep. I've written a zillion magazine articles. I just didn't know. So even um, on the proposal Random House said, could you put some of that in so we could see what it would look like and then send it back to us? And so I did that. And then it was like their final edit meeting of the year and they um, at 10 Speed Press and they they bought the book. And it was, it was really exciting That's for exciting. me. I didn't, you know, I never really expected it to happen. And I learned a lot about writing books from doing that. And then I think as a result of that book, I got a lot more business as a ghostwriter and I, with each book, I learned different things about making the book better or what people respond to and that type of knowledge. So it was a little easier when I did this new book. I, I knew the drill a little bit better, but it's never easy, as you know, you know <laughs> yeah. sit down and actually do it. And that's where I think a lot of discipline comes in. You know, with anybody who has to run a business, you either need external discipline if you're not somebody who's really self-motivated to sit down and do the work. You can get a coach or somebody like that to help you and be like the whip cracker. I, I tend to, I, I'm pretty self-motivated. So I, I would sit down and do it, but it was still hard for me to make myself do it sometimes because there are a million other things that you might rather be doing on a sunny April afternoon. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the thing that you have going for you is that you're, you like writing, you're good at writing. I, do not identify as a writer. I've been writing a weekly email for about almost four years now, published two books. I'm not a writer. <laughs> like, like it's not oh. my first medium. Um, speaking is video, audio, speaking is definitely my, my medium. And so, you know, I think you have to sort of commit to a project like that. And it was really great to hear this trajectory of you know, your, your little curiosity. I think that's so cool that you came across this like little U.S. Census data point and it just, you poked at it a bunch of times until you, you sort of found the secrets within. And then the people were like, we want more. And then you asked, you asked the network of people who are readers, hey, are you one of these people? And you slowly started to build these relationships. I think if you had set out to write the book initially, you would have really been staring at nothing because you didn't have all those connections. You didn't know there was pent up demand. And so you really built the audience for that first book before even sitting down to write that first book. And that was through kind of guiding people through this experience because you had an outlet through the magazine. And um, that's the best way to write a book is to kind of bring people on a journey even before you start writing the book and while you're writing the book. Too many times I, I work with a lot of would-be authors who are like, about to publish or maybe it's their second book and they're writing in secret. <laughs> they're not telling anybody anything. And, and, and I go, what, how is this book going to help your business? And they, they tell me about their big dreams. And I'm like, 
we got to start validating those ideas now. Like yes. we got to start talking to people now. And um, I just had a great conversation with someone who interviewed me on a podcast. And she said that after reading my second book, which is about building an audience before launching, she was in the middle of writing a, a book and realized that she was writing the wrong book. She had this like epiphany that it was a really hard decision to make, but her people don't need this book yet. There's something else they're all asking for that she thought was kind of elementary and like, you know, been there, done that. But she realized that's because it's her expertise. And so she stopped and she, she says, well, the stuff I wrote is still there and I'll use it in some way. And, but now I'm going to write the book that I know people are asking for and I'm actually involving them in the process. And she's like, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I said, you just saved yourself three years. <laughs> like, um, but it's, it's really hard when we're getting started to know that. And now the second book, so the first one's Tiny Business, Big Money. The second one was the one that I wish I'd actually read first because I feel like I'm now going to be so excited to finish it. I'm like halfway through. The million dollar one person business is a little different from the data point that you found. Like, tell me, like, how did you decide the parameters of what kind of businesses to include in that second book? So, so actually, the the um, the first book is the million dollar one person business. Oh, I did them backwards. Okay, yeah, you, you transpose it in your mind. I know a lot of people yes. do that. Um, the tiny business, big money came out of the million oh, right. dollar one person business because I updated the that book went into paperback, and when I was updating it, a number of the entrepreneurs said, "Elaine, I'm so sorry, but I'm not a one person business anymore." And I said, "Don't apologize. That's really good news. That means you're growing." I'm not against businesses that grow beyond one person. I just found that there was a gap in the marketplace. People were not writing about those businesses. They weren't really given much respect. I, I knew because I was a magazine editor and they just weren't considered really worthy of co being covered. It was all the venture back companies that got all the attention. But then I saw, well, all these people are starting these businesses they're not stupid. They know what they want to start. They're doing this by choice. Why, why is this the largest group of business owners if it's not even worth covering? And so I, I found when I wrote about it that I was getting a lot of validation. People were really interested in reading about other people that were on this journey with them who maybe making the most money in the world was not their biggest priority, but they, they had other goals for their life. And yet at the same time, they needed to pay their bills. They didn't want to live from hand to mouth. And there's no such thing as living paycheck to paycheck as a freelancer, right? Because you have no paycheck. They, they needed some stability so they can keep on doing what they love. Um, so these folks now had grown out of that a little bit where they needed help. They were getting so much business that they couldn't really execute anymore by themselves or they needed specialized knowledge that they didn't have. And I thought the real pain point for them is making that transition because when it's just you or like you and the occasional, you know, bookkeeping helper or, or your accountant, that's different than when you have a team, you know, and you, every Monday you have a meeting or you, you really need to set some quality control standards or teach people how you want things done. That takes a different mindset and a different set of skills. It requires you to kind of get out of your own way. But I didn't want to rewrite a book like The E-Myth because that's already been written. I thought, how are people doing it now? Because we've got all these digital tools that weren't available when some of the good books in this space were written. And how are they using it to design a life that they want. And what was really interesting was they really are using these tools to stay free, even though they have teams. One um, person in the book, you, you've probably come across him, Brian Dean, he founded Backlinko. He was a copywriter and then he, he got into writing about SEO and he had this really viral article, which then led to his course. He now has 10 freelancers and he manages them on the app Notion. He doesn't have meetings for the team. Someone said, how could he meet with you without having meetings? And, you know, I don't mean it hundred percent literally he, but he does, he, he, it's not like he has like a daily huddle or something like that. Um, and I thought that's so freeing, right? Because he doesn't want to do the conference room meeting. He doesn't want to do the zoom meeting. And he found a way with his unique personality to do it in a way that suits him. And that's, what's so exciting, I think is to see that those old rules don't necessarily apply. Yes, you do have to communicate. You do have to let people know what good looks like when a job is done, but there's a lot of wiggle room in terms of how you 
actually do this. And these are the people that you're describing where they really are finding a way to design the life they want to live. And a lot of times when people get into entrepreneurship, it's because they don't want to do the 50 or 60 hour work week that they were doing uh, as they were clocking in and out of a job, but then they willingly spend a hundred hours a week trying to build a business, <laughs> but they don't get that like design of the, you know, they don't have the life of taking time off. They're, you know, they're doing all the extra work themselves. And there, there's a point where you either build a team or you, or you get really good at all these new tools that are out there or some combination. Um, I'm really fortunate that February of 2020, I started working with a new virtual assistant and it was for a tiny job. It was like $100 to do some research. <laughs> and in March, my business completely tanked. Like the thing I was planning to do, you know, was no longer a thing people needed me to do anymore. And I had another VA and I let that VA go. But, the, but my current VA has been with me now since February 2020. And she has grown with me as a business owner. Like she, her own business is much more established as a VA. And she's got this clarity about the kind of client she wants to work with. And she's seen this trajectory. And I feel like there's just a great thing about having that team experience. And I have a coach that I pull in for my team. And I, I feel like in a very different place than I've been ever before because I'm by myself. I am the sole decision maker. I, you know, like whether I make money or don't make money is really about my own effort. But to not just be alone in my thoughts anymore, like to have people to bounce ideas off of, or people tell me I'm being ridiculous or whatever it is, um, that little bit of camaraderie you're talking about, like when you're in an office, I think that, you know, whether you do that with your peers, with accountability partners, masterminds, I try to do with all these things. I'm such a external influence person. Like uh, I'm motivated to get it done, but I partly am motivated by announcing to everyone my intention. Uh, to get it done. My first book, I went to the National Speakers Association Conference and I met Kathy Fayak and she's uh, an editor and she inspires people to write books. And she gave me a big button that said, ask me about my book. <laughs> and I got That's, really what good. What a great idea. <laughs> I got really good <laughs> at describing idea. my book by the end of that weekend. Like, people, what about your book? And I didn't have the, I didn't know how to describe my book the first six times, you know? By the end, I had it nailed down. <laughs> That's so great, but she under she understood that she had to cater that to your personality, or you wouldn't finish it, and that's a gift. But it's great yeah. that you have that self knowledge too. That you you thrive on that exchange of ideas with other people. That the feedback feeds your energy for the project, and that that's what I took away in this book. I interviewed almost sixty entrepreneurs, and I thought one of their success secrets, and I never put it in the book or really thought about it that much until just now is self-knowledge. They accept who they are and they tailor the business to how they really are instead of this hypothetical person who's the perfect entrepreneur. You know, if they're introverts, maybe all their marketing is online and they don't talk to customers. If they're extroverts, they're at trade shows. Right. It, it's really tailored to what their strengths are and and I like that. I really like that about the tiny business that you can do that and you don't have to fit yourself into a mold. I, I think a lot of people start businesses to escape the corporate mold, but then they force themselves into this other mold, which is the Silicon Valley venture-backed startup mold where you've got to be all in and you do nothing but work on the business. You have no outside bills. You have no responsibilities other than the business. But that applies to such a small demographic of people that are like two years out of college and, and <laughs> don't have to pay any bills and they can move back in with their parents. All the other people who have adult lives, they can't do that. And it doesn't mean they're less entrepreneurs. I, I, I mean, this is something I'm certain about because I have interviewed thousands of entrepreneurs. I've spent my life doing this and that has no correlation with success. There are people that are successful in all different lifestyles with all different demands on their time. Some people work late into the evening because they have kids or whatever. It doesn't limit your success. And I think the less people drink that Kool-Aid, the better. That's been exciting for me to see because I interview these entrepreneurs in such depth. I mean, some of these folks in the book, I think Anthony Coombs, one of the entrepreneurs, I think I interviewed him five times for his profile because I really want to understand what they're doing so that I can be useful in my role in, in explaining it to other people. And that doesn't always come out the first time, but um, 
you really see how they work. And I mean, you'll see in the book, there are people that have a lot of household responsibilities. There are people that have day jobs. One entrepreneur, Andy Humphrey, he's a consultant in the irrigation industry and he runs a podcast. You might've come across him, the sprinkler guy. And he has people working in his business. He hired people to run this e-commerce business selling irrigation stuff. And he still does the consulting because he likes it and it keeps him out there. Um, So that's another way to do it. He's got a family, he's got an at-home wife and that works for him. And that's not the Silicon Valley model, but the guy has two businesses that I think bring in about a million dollars in revenue a year. And that's nice. That's amazing. And, you know, you're making me also think also about all the people who um, espouse, you know, the, the um, get up early and, you know, you, you want to find more time to work in your business, you know, wake up at four in the morning and, uh, you know, I can't even think about that. Like, it's just so antithetical to who I am. Um, I wrote my book between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., like both books. Like, that's that's when my house is quiet. That's when I know there's no interruptions, no emails, no phone calls, uh, no meetings. And I, I, you know, take the break, do dinner, put the kids to bed, and then I would get to, get to work. And I think that when you are struggling to fit, like when you feel like you're less than because you're not doing it the way everyone else is telling you to do it, then it's like, you, you kind of can't just be like, I feel like once you accept, this is what works best for me. Um, then you embrace that and you can go all in on whatever that is. Uh, if you're trying to compare yourself to others or fit some other mold, whatever that might be. Um, that's one of the things I think that's very freeing about being an entrepreneur, but also daunting because <laughs> that means you have to decide for yourself, you know, your hours, your, how do you, systems, tracking. I mean, all these things that usually the thing we go into business for is not the business itself. (laughs) It's the service or the product that we're super excited about. I wanted to though, uh, ask you, you you were talking earlier about networking and I can't let this conversation wrap up uh, before we get to that. You talked about how you stayed in touch with all these people and and how they moved from one publication to another and you kind of pulled each other along and the cast of characters stayed the same. Do you have any you know habits or philosophies around that? You know, you've got their inner network of people that you know you're going to stay in touch with, but then there's like that second and third tier or layer out that maybe you see annually at a conference or you worked with five years ago, but you haven't seen them in a while. Now these are the people you like. I <laughs> just preference. These are the people you would enjoy hearing from. What what are your methods or or philosophies around how you sort of stay in touch with these kind of weaker connections? Well, there's not. I don't really have a, a, a method to it. I. I tend to just work with people that I really like and I enjoy talking with them and I like just getting to know them beyond just the work itself. So it just sort of happens naturally for me. I mean, that I, I, I'm, I'm not really a loud person, but I, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm an extrovert anyway, you know, (laughs) not that extroverts are loud, but, but I like people and I'm drawn to people and I like understanding what makes them tick and, just knowing them as people. And that's always been how I've kept in touch with people. Like I like going to have coffee with them and catching up on things and just chit-chatting a little when I get an assignment. I I just like that. And so maybe part of networking is finding a field where you actually enjoy the people um, and it's not work. Because if you have to really force yourself, we've all been in that situation where you're like, oh, I've got to reach out to that person you know, usually to ask them for something that that you hesitate to ask them for. And that's such a chore. It's so awful to have to gear yourself up to do it. Um, I think for people, some people are shy. And I think when I was younger, I was more shy, but now I don't know, just something about having four kids. It's like, you just kind of get over that and you just, you know, enjoy the moment where you can actually talk to somebody else. And um, if you're shy, sometimes make doing some sort of an email conversation up front, I think, or on LinkedIn can be a good way to start to get a dialogue going. And then when you talk to them, it's not like a cold conversation. You already have some things that you maybe wanted to ask them about. I think having a real curiosity about people too helps with that because every person that you come across has something to teach you and a big part of building relationships is, is listening. I mean, as a reporter, that's the nice thing is you, you really can sit back and listen. And, and if you really hear them, 
it grows your business too. I mean, it's it's kind of what you were talking about is paying attention. You know, what are your viral products and what is the marketplace telling you and what is your network telling you? Those that information is really valuable, but you also have to be willing to take it in and willing to sort of synthesize it. And it, it, and when you do that, then a lot of insights come out of it. Yeah. I mean, I, the term human centered keeps coming in my head as I'm hearing you describe this. And it's, it's, I've been seeing this pop up a lot lately on LinkedIn from a, quite a few different friends who I don't think all know each other. I have to make some introductions happen, but this idea of, of you're treating them as whole people, you know, you said I get an assignment and I chit chat with people and I, you know, I, if, if we have the opportunity to, when I, we're going to go for coffee and talk about what's going on in life. Like you're treating them as, as whole humans that have a lifetime of experience and um, maybe something to teach you and maybe something you can offer them. And I just, you know, sort of like, I think your journalism skills um, give you great training for good networking because it's, it is a lot of what we all need to be doing is like, you know, talking less, listening, asking thoughtful follow-up questions, like actually hearing what people say and noting what their emotions are around it so that we can, if, you know, does it make sense to ask a thoughtful follow-up question or, you know, was that a throwaway comment that we can let go? And um, I just, I love that you're, you're sort of taking all of this and saying, like, if you like people, it's not so hard to network. If you could, jo- if you're in an industry where it's painful, maybe try a different industry, like uh, find the people that you really jive with. Um, that all sounds like so much better than the, you know, cold call, uh, go to a conference and just spray and pray your business cards around, which is a, the transactional way of networking that I think a lot of people um, just shy away from because it just doesn't feel good. I think that's true. And even within a certain field, sometimes there are different mindsets. And I think the more you gravitate toward people that have a mindset that you're comfortable with, the easier it will be. Like when I work on my ghostwriting part of my business, I really like to work with people that think about business in a way that transcends just business and they feel some sort of responsibility to the world for how they run their business. So I, I don't really ghost. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't knowingly ghostwrite for somebody who just thinks of a business as something that's throwing off money, you know, like you, 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 sometimes you talk to business people that think that way, but it's, to me, it's about so much more. And for someone else that might be really interesting, who's very right. quantitative, it, it, they might really enjoy that, but I won't really like telling that story. And so I just gravitate away from that and more towards the people who see, you know, business as tied to their, to personal wellness and lifestyle and the community and nurturing other people. It's, it's just how I think, and it's just much more comfortable for me. So I think just the more you know yourself and what you like, and that just comes through working with different clients and you get certain clients who you just dread talking to them. <laughs> and as you get you know, you know, in, into your practice for a while, you start to realize this, it, it, you notice what the signs are that this might be a potential client that isn't a good fit. And right. you can acknowledge that to yourself instead of feeling you have to work with every single person because it does drain you if things are not a good fit. At the same time, sometimes it's good to have people that challenge you and challenge your perceptions. You don't want it to be just an echo chamber either. There's there's sort of a, a, a median, uh, a, like a, a central place you want to get with this mm-hmm. where you have a nice balance to it. And it's, it's, it's hard to define, but you sort of know it when you have it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, as we're wrapping up here, uh, I, have, I have a final question for you. Elaine, which is um, when when we stay in touch, because you're the kind of person I'm going to be tracking. I, I'm excited to finish your book and then write reviews for you because I'm, I'm as an author, I know I how important those are. <laughs> um, so, I, but I'm excited to do that. And I'm thinking, like, let's say it's a year from now, and I run into you and I say, "Hey, Elaine, it's been a year since I interviewed you. You know, w- what's going on? What do you, what, what should we be celebrating right now?" So, my question is, what will we be toasting to? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, that's a good question. For the first time in a long time, I feel like the coming year is a blank slate. I've been so project focused that I left it kind of open-ended for this year. I have some irons in the fire. I'm not ready to announce yet, but but, uh, 
you know, because of COVID and everything else, I think we're, we're going into a whole new environment and I want to stay open to what that tells me and lean into whatever it is. So I'm just, I'm just keeping it really open. Wow. That, I mean, that's the fact that you're choosing to do that and giving yourself the space to do that is something worth celebrating even just right now. So kudos to you. And I would love to know how people can find you and follow your work. They can find me on my website, which is under my full name, which I'm sure is in the show notes, um, or tinybusinessbigmoney.com or on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook under my first and last names. And I do write back. It makes me a better journalist to know what you're thinking about or what questions you have. I have sometimes people write to me you know, for um, a reality check on their business ideas. I, I just like, I like hearing from people. So don't be shy and uh, send me your questions and I'll, I, I will respond. That's awesome. We will have all those links in the show notes at onthechmooze.com. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much, Robbie, for being such a great connector and such a great teacher for people of this skill because networking doesn't come easily for everybody. And um, just as a parent, I feel like, you know, it's, it's the greatest gift you can give to people is to teach them how to connect with other people who will support them and what they want to do. And so your work is really important. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Elaine. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 282. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which your favorite interviews. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.